Right. Well, good morning again. We're so glad you guys are here with us. Uh, I got a couple of things that's kind of talked through, worked through some announcement stuff coming up. I know there's the announcement video. I just wanted to kind of explain some stuff. Uh, so the big one is uh, Christmas is coming. Um, it's not here yet, just for you weirdos. Uh, the only acceptable time to decorate for Christmas is the day after Thanksgiving while you're wearing a dickie watching National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. That's the only, it's in Leviticus somewhere, and so just so you guys know, uh, so that is the official day. But Christmas is coming, and so one of the big things that we've done around here for years is a big event called Grinchmas. You guys have probably participated in it, maybe brought your family and friends, maybe got some of you her out journey. And so it's a big community offering. We basically transformed this entire building um, into a winter wonderland for about three days. We have thousands of people that come through, and it's a great experience. It's a great event. Um, yeah, it's a, it is a great event, but you're not going to like this next part. And so, um, so what happened, though, was last year, um, so if you've been, we, 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 we pretty much decorate the whole building, and we use a lot of plastic sheeting to be able to accomplish this decorating. Um, and the fire marshal came in, and opposed, supposedly that's highly flammable. Um, and so in order to be able to continue to do the Grinchmas, uh, we have to replace all the plastic sheeting with fire retardant um, curtains which are very, very expensive. And so what we're doing is we're taking a pause from Grinchmas this year to be able to be able to purchase the curtains and move the event forward. However, we don't want to not be able to offer something for our community um, at Christmas time. So uh, what we did was on December 2nd, there's a Christmas parade that takes place here in Shepherdsville and the new mayor is trying to revamp it and everything. And so it starts down there like by Walgreens and goes down 61 Preston right here in front of our building. So what we with, we called the mayor and we said, hey, what we'd like to do for that night is we want to do a mini version of Grinchmas in which our whole building is open up. We don't decorate the whole building, but a lot of it, Buddy will be there, Santa, all the characters and all that. And it's a walkthrough experience on a smaller scale than what we've done before. So it'll be one night on December 2nd. So it'll be open for a couple hours before the parade. The parade ends right in front of our building. People can come into our building, do the experience. We're also going to turn our parking lot into a Christmas town. So there'll be food trucks and vendors and all this stuff. We're going to make it as much like a Hallmark movie as we can, okay? And so that is going to be on December 2nd. We would love for you to participate. Uh, weather hopefully will be great. If the weather's bad, we're going to open up our building and let vendors and stuff set up in here and all that stuff too. So it's going to be a great event, just a little bit different. Another thing we're working on, we got it lined up with all the characters and everything, is possibly opening it up that morning for a couple hours just for journey people to come and experience with your families and do the walkthrough experience and all that stuff. So there'll be a lot of information coming up, but that'll be on December 2nd, which is just a few weeks away. Um, but it's a ton of work to put that on, even on a smaller scale. And so if you're interested in volunteering and helping out, you can stop by the Welcome Center or sign up on the app. Uh, if you've never been a part of Grinchmas, we don't even know what we're going to call it because we're not actually even a Grinch this year. It's like a Christmas explosion. And so if you want to be a part of Christmas explosion or whatever it's going to be, uh, make sure and stop by the Welcome Center so you can get involved. And we'll have plenty of volunteer opportunities for that. Also, this Friday uh, is a wild game night for the fellas here at Journey. And so what we're going to do is get a bunch of guys together and eat a bunch of animals. Um, and so, uh, listen, if you want to participate in that, we need to know if you're coming by tomorrow. So we make sure that we have enough food. Um, and so um, if you're a guy, go ahead and get the app out or stop by the Welcome Center, sign up. Um, or more realistically, um, you can sign your husband up wives um, on the app. And so that is this Friday. Um, it's going to be a great time. We're just going to hang out and eat some meat and some 
some different things. And if you're a vegetarian, we will have coleslaw and some peanuts, probably. Um, I don't know what else to tell you, uh, but we would still love for you to participate. And so it will be an exciting time, but you need to sign up by tomorrow so we know who all is coming. Also, at the Welcome Center, there's these little Advent boxes out there. And uh, what we're doing, Advent is coming up. It starts the first day of December. We've got these Advent boxes. It's a 25-day experience for you and your family. There's little projects and things that you can do. Uh, Those boxes, because we didn't have to buy them, are about $10 a box. Uh, But it's got 25 days worth of things. You can stop by there and take a look at it. Um, But if you're interested, we need to make the order those by next week. They come from a big company. Uh, But it'd be a great experience for you and your family to do that together if you've never done like an Advent experience. Uh, But you can stop out in the lobby and get those boxes. And then lastly, as the holidays come up, other than Thanksgiving Day, don't forget we have a Thursday service because I know schedules get crazy. Uh, So we always have a Thursday service at 7 o'clock. It's almost the exact same thing on a smaller scale that you see on Sunday. So if you have plans, make sure and check out our Thursday service as well. I think that's all I had to talk about. Uh, So we're going to go into the sermon now. And uh, I want to tell you a story about a woman named Elizabeth. Um, And this story takes place in 1955. And one day she's going into her closet and she decides she's going to clean out her closet, as many of us do. And so she's going through her closet and she's got a bunch of clothes and things that she's going to discard, things that have gotten eaten away by moss or different things and are kind of getting tattered and worn and stuff that realistically she's probably never going to use, never going to wear again. And so she's going through her closet and she's making this pile of things that she's going to donate and things that she's just going to throw away. And as she's making this pile, uh, one of the things that she finds and comes across is an old green coat. Now, this coat had been worn and tattered and started to phrase. It had gotten kind of fuzzy and all these different things. And, and so she had decided she was just going to get rid of this, discard it, throw it away, not even try to donate it somewhere because who would want to wear this old, old green coat? To her surprise, her son walks in her room and sees the green coat laying there, and he asks if he can have the green coat. And after some back and forth conversation, because she's very confused why he would want the green coat, she eventually lets him have the green coat. And in her mind, she wonders why anybody, especially him, would want anything to even do with this coat. And so the story goes that her son, uh, he takes this throwaway coat, this thing that most of us in this room would have just thrown away, and he takes it into his workshop, and he carefully takes this jacket and turns it into a vision of something that he has. And back in 1955, no one, especially Elizabeth, would have imagined that the discarded green coat would go on to become an international icon that pretty much anywhere you go in the world, people will see the image of this coat and know exactly what it is. See, this woman, her name was Elizabeth, but she had a son, and her son's name was Jim, as in Jim Henson. And he took that old green coat and he turned it into the icon that we all now know as Kermit the Frog. This is what happens when you take something that most people would consider a throwaway and you put it into the hands of the right person. The right person with the right vision could take something that's old and tattered and broken and turn it into something amazing. And the reality is, the reason I tell you that story is because I also believe that's what could happen when we put our old and tattered and broken hands, our lives, into the hands of God. That he can have a vision for our brokenness and he can craft something surprising out of the pieces of our story. He believes that our imperfections are the raw materials for crafting something extraordinary, just like Jim Henson did all those years ago with that old green coat. I get invited every summer to speak at a church camp uh, for middle school students. And um, a couple years ago, 
I was getting to like the last night and the last night is like the decision night when you're trying to, you know, you talked about a bunch of stuff and you're trying to get kids to kind of make decisions for Jesus and not like, you know, just use language to try to help them understand what that looks like. And so I had this idea for that night and the idea was, was I was going to take all these little um, postcards and I was going to make a bunch of them. And at some point during my teaching, I was going to do like a little three to four minute um, break and to give all the kids these postcards. And what they could do was anonymously, they could write down like their secrets and what they're carrying and like their life experiences and the things that have kind of defined them, but not in a good way. They could write these down anonymously on these cards. And then what they would do is there would be a point in the service in which there was this box underneath this cross. And what they could do is they could come up and take those things and put them in the box as kind of a symbolic way of letting go of some of those things or putting those at the feet of the cross um, in their lives. And and so we did this thing. And um, the next day, the youth ministers were asking me, like, what do you want to do with those? Because they're all in this box and they're all anonymous. And at first, my thought was just like, oh, just throw them away. Like, I don't even know what I would do with these things. And then I made this decision. I was like, no, I kind of want to see them. And and so I opened this box, and I started just kind of going through these postcards. And and, and mind you, these are middle school students. And one of the things that just kind of overwhelmed me was, was this. Like, when I was in middle school, like, my biggest concern and worry was whether I would ever meet Topanga or not, right? Like, that was, like, that was, like, my big life conundrum. And some of you don't know who that is. That's okay. And so, uh, but these kids, as I was reading these cards and just seeing all of the things that they were already carrying, all these really heavy things, these secrets and these things, and, and just filling the weight of some of the words on those cards, and, and for some of these kids, like them believing this is who they are, this is what makes them who they are, are these failures and these mistakes and these past things. And early on in, in Journey's history, I, I did a series um, that we're going to do again next year. It was called You Asked. And it was essentially um, just a series where um, people would just write questions on cards and turn them in. And then um, I would carefully try to like create sermons around those questions that people have. And, and, and one of the things that surprised me about that series was when I did it, um, I was expecting, I read my mind preparing like a sermon about like creation and then something about like what's up with revelation because it's weird. And then like all this stuff. And then like I was thinking there's going to be like hot button issues like in our country and society that people are going to talk about. But what surprised me overwhelmingly was it wasn't those type of questions. One of the most common questions that came up was kind of like this phrase this way is like, how do I actually overcome my past? Like there was somebody that asked like, you know, you keep talking about where this new creation, but what does that actually look like and how do I do that? Things like, I believe that God could forgive me, but how do I forgive myself? Someone even says, I want to believe that God could love someone like me. And what was amazing was, I was thinking about those two things, those, the world of those questions from the middle school students and those cards, and then the cards of if you could ask anything that you want us to talk about on a Sunday morning, it all came down to this like pain, and there was shame, and there was fear, and there was moments of rejection people talked about. But the biggest thing that kind of came to me was this word brokenness. There was just this sense of brokenness in people. There was this sense in which there were things in our lives that are broken. And you may not like that word, but, but it's the reality is that all of us kind of have that similar pattern, that there's areas and parts and things in our life that are broken. 
When I, uh, a little bit over 11 years ago, when I stepped into this role of starting Journey, and, and I stopped working, I worked with students for years, and it was awesome. Like, I loved doing student ministry. Like, it was, it was chaos, but it was fun. And then I got working with adults, and it got real complicated real fast, because you guys are complicated. And, and what happened was, I, I kind of had this moment where I, I made this deal with God um, when I started this, and I don't know if you're supposed to make deals with God, but I did. And it, it was like this. I said, I'll, I'll do this. Like, I'll start working with adults. I'll start a church, um, but under one condition. Like, I get to be me, and I get to be real, and I get to have real conversations with real people about real things. And the other thought was that we're going to talk more about grace and hope and second chances than anything else. It will become a safe place for people where doubts and fears and wounds and hurts and insecurities that we all have, the acknowledgement that it's okay that those are a part of our story because we all carry those things. We all have those things. It wasn't my idea originally, but I wanted to be a me too kind of place where broken people with scarred hearts and lives can come in and find some healing, where second chances abound, which leads us to this story. So about a year before, two years, I think it was, um, before we started Journey, we went down to um, New Orleans right after Katrina, and we were helping rebuild some homes down there. And, and there was a daily devotional. And this story that we're going to look at today was the daily devotional. And it's kind of shaped the way in which I think about a lot of things. And um, this story was, was so important to me at one point uh, that when we found out we were having a daughter. I asked my wife if we could name our daughter after this person. Um, and thankfully, she had the better judgment to say that's not a good idea. And um, as you read the story, you'll know why. And so in, in Joshua chapter 2, uh, we're introduced to a, a woman. And in this story, if you don't know the background, so this is taking place after kind of Moses. And so the people have been freed from Egypt. They're wandering around the wilderness. They're on their way to this promised land that God has promised and God keeps his promise through these covenants and all these things. So they're on their way and Moses has now died and a new leader has emerged named Joshua. And so he's leading the people to the promised land, um, but there's a giant obstacle in the way of them getting to the promised land and that's Jericho. And, and so there's this moment where they realize that they have to be able um, to conquer this great and tremendous and power and prestigious city. Um, but in order to do that, what, what Joshua decides is he needs to kind of know the lay of the land inside of the city. And so he gets these spies together and he sends them into the city to kind of navigate the city and try to kind of map out everything that they can find out about the city so that when they go to take this conquest, to take this city for this promised land they've been given, they kind of know what they're getting into. And, and so... Um, they're, they're going through the city and they're navigating it and it becomes apparent that the, the government, the kings and the people, that, the, they know that they're there. And so they start to actually chase these spies. They're, they're kind of on their heels trying to find these spies before they can get out of the city and go back and tell Joshua all that they've discovered. And so they're kind of um, going through the city, trying to escape the city, and, and they get to this one part of the city and they have a decision to make. Um, they've got to hide somewhere because the people pursuing them, they're getting close and it's growing. And, and so they have to hide somewhere. And so they go to this house and they, they go to this house and we have to assume they knock on the door. And there they encounter a woman. And this woman in this moment, and you got to imagine the anxiety and the fear. Like at this point, we believe in the story that it's spread, that these spies are in the city. So she's aware of them, as we will see. Um, and, and so these people are now at her door and they knock on her door and she has a choice to make. And so 
she allows these spies to come into her house and she hides them. And she hides them from the people that are chasing them and the people even show up that are chasing them and they go to her and they say, hey, we, there's these spies. And she's like, oh, I just saw them. They went that way, you know, and, and this whole time she's hiding them. And after the pursuers leave, um, she goes to these men, these spies that were in great danger. And in reality, she was in great danger for even doing this. Um, and she goes to them and, and she starts to talk to them. And she tells them not only how to escape the city, but she doesn't end there. And what she tells them in this moment is that she actually believes that God is going to do what God said he was going to do. That he, they're going to give, that God's going to give these men this promised land. Now, this is not her God. This is not her faith. She's a Canaanite. These are Israelites. But she wanted to be on the right side of this because she in this moment had this faith and this trust in their God. And so because of her bold decision and this defining moment to make this choice, her entire future for her and her family, but also for these men and the story that God's writing changes. But before she leave, the men leave, she, she goes to the men and she says this. She goes, now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all of their families. So what's amazing to me about this story is you have this, this woman, this Canaanite woman. These are not her people, but she all of a sudden has this trust and this faith in, in, in God. And, and there's this amazing story that's going to unfold from this one decision. But first we have to acknowledge something, that this woman, she had a past. Anybody have a past? And this past came with a label. See, see, this woman throughout the rest of the scriptures and throughout most of history is going to have a label associated with her name. Her neighbors, her fellow citizens, her family, and even her customers knew her as Rahab the prostitute. That was her label. In fact, throughout the rest of scripture, they'll refer to her as Rahab the prostitute. And now you know why my wife didn't think it was a good idea to name my daughter this. <laughs> now, I don't want to judge anyone, especially this woman. But I have to believe that if you wake up one day and your profession is prostitution, things haven't gone as planned. Something's gone wrong. And even in a sinful, corrupt culture of the Canaanites, women typically did not become prostitutes unless they were forced to or they didn't see any other way. And so she gets this label, she gets this title because of choices that she's made, and this becomes her identity, this label of Rahab the prostitute. But see, here's the thing. We all wear labels. We all get labeled in life. And we don't talk about it a lot, but we, we do get labels. And some of us, um, some of the labels we get are good. So like some of us, um, we, we work really hard in life. And at some point we get labeled um, with this great label um, that people often aspire to. And we get like a label like doctor, right? And so wherever you go, you're doctor. You ever met like a doctor and you call them not doctor? They're like, it's actually doctor. And I'm like, okay, you're right. All right, so uh, they get that. Um, or, or maybe like professor, like if you had a professor that you really respect, and so it's like professor. Uh, one of my favorites was Professor James Curfee. And if you didn't call him that, like he would tell you, um, no, that's professor. And so, uh, so you get these labels and some of them are good. We've earned them. Uh, some of us have been gifted in life 
And so like the, the, the label we might get is that we're like an athlete. And some of us, none of us in this room, some people actually make a living off this title, right? They make a living off this label. They, they, they're, they're athletes. Like that's what they're, they're known for, right? And, and so um, there's all kinds of labels. Um, one of the ones that we aspire to, um, I think for a lot of us, is that we don't often say this, but we just want to be cool. Because cool is associated with other labels like acceptance and popular and friends. And so we have this label that some of us maybe got back in middle school or high school, and we wear that label. But then, like, those are the good ones, and there's all kinds of them. But then, like, some of them, like, you know, you remember middle school? Middle school was awful, right? It was cruel. And so some of us would get, like, labels like this, like you were a, a nerd, right? If you're an adult and you still call somebody a nerd, there's something wrong with you. But in middle school, like, this is, like, an acceptable, like, thing. Like, you're a nerd or, like, you know, depending on how your high school experience went in middle school, um, you might get another label, like, like, loser. Like, some people may believe that. And then depending on who you are and what your background is and what you look like or what you think of yourself, like, you might think of yourself and the only word that you see and hear is fat, right? Somebody called you that. Somebody said that. Or maybe because of cruel experiences or the way you see yourself, all you see is ugly. So we have these labels, and, and some of them, you know, they're, they're just labels that people give us about different things. But then there's some that become more serious, right? Because of choices we've made or things that have happened to us, we wear labels like addict. And that becomes a part of our story. Or maybe some of us, we feel like we're just a failure. Or we're trash. Or we're no good. And so these are labels that we get. And for some people, just like those middle schoolers all those years that go to camp, like we try to hide those things. We try to conceal those things. We don't want people to know that that's what people have said about us or what we even think about ourselves. Or for some people, what ends up happening is that was a label you had in the past, but then you changed. And like the worst possible thing that could happen is your past meets your future and your present. And so like you, you, you don't want like your new friends to ever meet your old friends, you know, because they got nicknames for you and all that stuff. And, and so you're just like all these labels. And then for some people, the fear is that when you come into a place like church is you know your label out there and the fear is that you're going to be labeled the same way in here and this was supposed to be the place of hope and love and second chances so what's interesting about this Rahab story is these are like the men of God like these are God's chosen people and this woman obviously has a bit of a history and a bit of a past and what's interesting is when the men hide her and then they kind of make this deal with her, what's interesting is there's nothing said about her lifestyle. And the reason I bring that up is because what kind of hit me was Rahab's past was not an obstacle to what God was going to do. It's not even like brought up. The reality is the embarrassment of our past is also not an obstacle to the redemption that God can offer. Now, some people, they don't believe this and they don't want to believe this. And so I, I believe some of us have bought into what I call the four condemnments that we give ourselves. And, and so here's the first one. Um, for some people, we actually don't believe that we deserve a second chance. And, and here's the dangerous part. You might believe you deserve a second chance. You don't believe other people deserve a second chance. Or, or maybe it's this. is um, uh, I am, second one, my shame, I am my secrets. That's how you've defined yourself. In fact, the scariest thing in the world to you is that you have to come into a place where you'd actually have to be honest because you've gotten so good at hiding everything. Or for some people, it's this. Um, 
I will always feel and be this way. Like it's been a part of your history and your past so long. Like it's just become how you define yourself and, and people, including yourself, make all kinds of excuses for how you got this way. And it's just, this is, this is just who I am. This is the way it's going to be. Or, or maybe for some of us, we actually do believe the fourth one is that um, we are defined by our worst moments. So whatever the highlight reel is of your worst moments, that's how you see yourself and that's how you think other people see you. But the reality is, is just like Rahab, we're all invited just as we are, mistakes and all, to have this moment where we put our trust and our faith in something bigger than us. One of the biggest lies that I see people deal with all the time is this belief that God's mercy doesn't reach far enough and that the hand of grace is just beyond whatever it is that you're going through or sometimes what you think other people are going through. So in this story, uh, the spies make it out of the city. They go back to Joshua. They report everything that they've seen and kind of thing. And, and then they say, okay, but there's this woman. All right, we got we to gotta take care of her. And, and so the story continues um, that, that essentially uh, during the pandemonium of the battle, uh, as the city is kind of being taken over and, and the houses are being burned and as there's swords clashing and, and all of these things, there's a small Hebrew squad that's sent in to rescue Rahab. And so they actually go in and they get her father and her mother and brothers and all who belong to her, just like was promised to her. And they actually rescue her and escort her out of the city safely. And at the end of this story, there's this little note. It says this. So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now, that last line is really important because she still lives with them and her descendants as whoever's writing this story is writing it down, which means this wasn't just like, oh, we saved you, good luck. No, think about this. A Canaanite prostitute who, according to the law of Moses, deserved to be stoned to death, became an accepted member of the community an adopted daughter of the people of God. Her past would not define her future anymore. This is the way of grace. See, one of the things people have to understand is we have all these labels that that we carry in life and that are about us and written about us, and I just did the safe ones. There's a lot more I could have said about labels. Um, But but here's the thing. When you become a part of the family of God, um, you get some new labels. Labels like forgiven, accepted, and loved. And I don't know how long it took Rahab to completely shake her past. I I would assume when you've been through some of the things that she's been through, there's a period of time in which it takes some time to adapt to this new reality and this new life. And I'm sure there were some ups and downs along her journey. I'm sure it was a process of actually believing that a second chance had been given to her and actually living in that second chance. But there's this cool detail about Rahab that maybe you don't know. So um, as I've said, almost every time we see the name, there's always like that little tagline. It's Rahab the prostitute. But, but if you know Rahab's story, which, which you also know is that eventually um, there was another nickname that some people gave her. And it wasn't Rahab the prostitute anymore. The nickname she eventually got by some is Rahab the mother of kings. 
See, what happens is in her story, after Jericho was conquered, Rahab lived among the Israelites, as the writer told us, and she's traveling with them, and she actually goes to the promised land with them. And eventually she marries this guy named Salmon, and, and, and he, she has this child with this guy, this guy that actually loves her and accepts her and for what she is. And, and eventually she has this child with this guy named Boaz. Boaz is the guy that we read about in the book of Ruth, and, and Ruth and Boaz had a child named Obed, and Obed and his wife had a son named Jesse, and Jesse gave birth to a son named David, who was a shepherd boy, who eventually got a label himself, David the giant slayer, who eventually got another title as David, the greatest king of Israel. And that would be enough. That's a great story. But, but what you have to understand is you leap through the generations. In fact, there's 24 from the time of David 24 generations to eventually we see another descendant. And it's a guy named Joseph, as in Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus. I mean, consider the implications of this story, of this woman. That this one choice that she makes eventually influences the lineage of not only David, but also the story that we know about the birth of Jesus. God puts squarely in the midst of the story he's writing, Rahab, the prostitute. I think the reason he does this is he wants us to know firmly that God doesn't mind working through broken and hurting people. In fact, there's this language that comes up in the New Testament, like the least of these. That God is willing to use even the least of these. Now, there's this another amazing part of Rahab's story. So, so later, um, in the early part of, of the church, um, there will be a writer that writes this amazing book, one of the most famous letters and books that we have in the Bible. And within this letter, there's a chapter that specifically is one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. And, and in this chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer tell, retells the story of these amazing men and women of faith. And, and in this chapter, if you've never read it, I mean, he's talking about the big guys, like the big ones, like Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Samson and David. Like he's talking about the names, like and even if you've never been to church before, like you know these names. These are the names that Hollywood writes movies about. And tucked right in the middle of this chapter about the giants of faith, the most amazing stories of faith. And verse 31 says this, and it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute. Rahab, who would go on to be referred to as some as the mother of kings. Generations would look upon Rahab as the, one of the most fortunate women to ever find refuge in the mercy of God. All because she had this faith to trust in this moment when it would have been all too easy not to. And the good news is, is the story that we read in the Bible is about a God who gives second chances even to a woman like Rahab is the same God that we talk about when we speak and we sing today. It's the same invitation that's made to us today that you don't have to be defined by your past, by your failures, by your labels. You actually have a choice as to what your next step will be. Brene Brown once said this. She said, when we deny the story, which is the temptation of some people when we know our past, when we deny the story, he said it can define us. When we own the story, we can write a brave new ending. And I think Rahab is an example of a brave new ending being written. See, we might all be tempted to think you're just an old, overused, beat-up green coat. 
but in the hands of the right person, you become so much more. Now, this story um, has made a major impact on me over the years. Um, and uh, one particular story that I'll try to get through um, was a few years ago, I think it was like 2016, I, I talked about Rahab in a sermon that I did. And at the end of the service, this lady comes up to me and she asked me, she goes, um, do you believe that this is true? And I was like, yeah, like I, I believe that that's true. And she goes, no, do you really, really believe that that's true? Like that that happened? And I said, yeah, I really believe it's true. And I was expecting to like, get in like this theological debate all of a sudden, you know, and be like, you know, all this stuff. And, and she goes, okay. And so she started to walk away and I stopped there and, and I said, um, I said, if you don't want me asking, like, nobody's ever asked me if Rahab the prostitute story is true. Like, like, why does that, why do you need to know that? And she looked at me and she said, because I need to know that God can use people even like me. And what I found out later after meeting with her and talking to her is that her past was not different than Rahab's past. And she just needed to know that it was true. Britton Manning uh, has this great quote that we've used before. It's like one of my favorite quotes. And he says this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. Identity is the engine that drives your story. How you view yourself, how you view the possibility of what could be. And so when you ask the question, who am I? The truest, purest, non-negotiable identity is that you're beloved. In spite of your checkered past, your fabulous flops, your painful history, your deepest flaws that we all have, do you believe that you could be God's beloved? In a minute, we're going to sing the song that I've asked the band to, to sing. Um, and it's become one of my favorite songs recently, just because of a couple of lines in this song. And in this song we're going to sing, there's this part where it says, Arrival's not the end game, the journey's where you are. You never wanted perfect, you just wanted my heart. And the story isn't over if the story isn't good. See, the temptation of Rahab would be to believe that her story was over. But it's not over if it's not good. It goes on to say that we have to check our shame at the door because it's not welcome anymore. It's not about the steps you've taken. The most important step you can take is the next one. And so this Sunday, what we do every once in a while is a baptism Sunday. And so we have a couple people that are already getting baptized, but here's what I want to say. Um, Rahab had no idea what hung in the balance of her to take that moment. I mean, can you imagine as she heard those spies knock on the door the fear, the anxiety, the worry. But yet she has this moment, okay, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna trust this. And the reality is you have no idea what hangs in the balance for you to have that same decision. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna trust this. See, baptism is the place where labels change. It's the place where labels get washed away. And I know it can be intimidating, and I know some of you are maybe a little nervous that I'm even talking about it right now. That's okay. And you're like, well, I didn't bring any clothes. We got everything you need, I promise. And so as we sing these songs here in a minute, my hope is not only the words we've said, but also the words that we sing, that there's this moment of connection, this moment of, of hope, a moment of belief that there is a second chance, even for you 
that God is the God of second chances. May we never forget that or stop believing that. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the grace that you give, the mercy that you give. We thank you that you're a God that says the labels don't have to define us. The story is not over if the story is not good, that you can rewrite stories. No matter how far we've gotten, no matter how off the path we've gotten, that you're a God of second chances of grace and mercy. And the reality is, just like Rahab that one day, that we have no idea what hangs in the balance if we choose to have that moment of faith that, like she did, to put her trust in her faith and a promise that you've made. And maybe that's the same challenge to us today is to put our trust in our faith and a promise that you've made. And so God, give us the wisdom, give us the strength, give us the mercy, give us the grace, give us the peace. And God, maybe for some of us in these next few minutes, we just need to think about that. Think about the second chance that we've been given. For some of us, maybe it's the moment where we actually need to accept that second chance. And so God, as we take these moments and we just pray and we sing, God, allow your still, quiet voice to remind us that we are the beloved. And so we love you and we thank you. In your sons, then we pray. Amen. Every week we come to this time, there's a couple things that are going to happen. This is a time of communion.